Psalm 31. That's where we'll start tonight. Psalm 31, we'll read verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 31. In Psalm 31, verse 5, David writes, In your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to stand before my family, Father God, and to be able to preach your word. And I pray, Father God, that it's, it's, uh, it's prayed over first and foremost, Father God, that it's been studied and meditated upon and well thought out, Lord. That I'm not coming in here, Father God, half prepared or half ready, Father, but I brought something, Lord, that you have brought to being within my mind and heart, Father God, that you've prepared, God, by your direct action, by your hand, by the leadership of your Holy Spirit, Father God, to be preached from this pulpit. That everything that's said here, Father God, is sacred. Not because I make it sacred, not because the men, Father God, involved in this in, in preaching from this pulpit, make it sacred, Father. That we believe it's sacred, Father, first and foremost. Because, Lord, you have addressed our hearts such that we've been given, Father God, a, a purpose for our preaching. That every time we come, Father God, we have had laid upon our hearts, inscribed upon us, Father, a truth that must be shared with the world. And so as we do this, Father God, I pray, Lord, that I'm ready. I pray, Father God, that the church has prepared themselves. They prayed. They've lifted me up, Father God, as preacher and speaker. We pray for themselves and the clarity of their hearts, Father God, and that we will come here today, Father, ready uh, to, to give, Father, and to receive. And I pray for that now, Father, that as we come, that we will see just in two verses, Father, uh, an immense truth, a Bible-spanning truth, Father God, that saves the souls of men and women. I pray for that today, Father God. I pray for salvation, Father. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. Um, look, our focal passage. It offers to us this connection between positive and practical teaching that we get in the Psalms all the time. We can live our lives by the truth of the Psalms. That's a good thing. We've talked about this a lot. God's given us a gift in 150 Psalms. God's given us a gift that touches on virtually every topic, including many times the topic of our own salvation. We wouldn't understand our salvation, God's gospel, with the intensity and the clarity that we do without having the truth that's recorded within the Psalms. But at the same time, this Psalm, this verse, especially verse 5, gives us a direct connection, not just to what David would say to us on a regular basis within his Psalms, but what Christ says to us on the cross and in his gospels. So, we don't have to artificially preach this passage and make a beeline for the cross. The beeline for the cross is already laid out for us within the words of this passage. So we understand that. And we, which means we, are, we, we should be on very safe ground tonight. So if we'll just go together and we'll see what God has to show us. Not just about the truth of this passage, but the truth of the gospel as a whole. The best approach to this passage of Scripture is to exegete it verse by verse, missing nothing and surrendering to the words, the respect for truth that each believer in Christ owes the Word of God. I had the, the, the blessing of preaching, of, of, of preaching to, the, uh, to the recovery group in, in Raleigh on Monday night. And I had to begin that way, not that those gentlemen were in any way violating this, but God had reminded me and I felt the urge to remind others. And that was that... 
we hold precious, sacred, powerful words upon our laps. Why bring it? Why bring it physically? Why bring it physically? Because it's precious. Why bring it physically? Because it's important. Why bring it physically? Because it is literally the words of life. We can look at, Jude, at, at Psalm 31 verses 5 and 6 and we can find the path to, to redemption through Psalm 31, 5 and 6. So we ought to always treat it with that kind of respect. And I'm going to be quite blunt with you. I think especially as the church, those of us who've been washed by the blood of Christ, those of us who know better, oftentimes we don't treat the Bible with respect we should. We act and talk a big game about it. And we argue about it. We have all these opinions and all these kinds of things. But we don't do what we know we ought to do. And what I mean is this. We don't open it with trembling hands. Because these are the words of life, right? They're not some old words. It's not some idea somewhere that you can dispense with if you want to. If you're saved, you're saved because you had a supernatural, in, uh, supernatural um, meeting with the Word of God. Orchestrated by God's Holy Spirit to save your soul. The truth of the Bible, the truth of the Gospel was intimate to what God has done in you. For that reason, we, we need to treat it with the, most, with the greatest respect that we have to treat it. So we, we deal with it verse by verse. We deal with it even clause by clause. We deal with it not just on the micro level, but on the macro level. I mean, throughout the whole, we, we seek out connections throughout the entire gospel, throughout the entire Bible for the gospel. We do that for one reason. We do that because we have so much respect for it. We want God to show us everything, he, everything He's willing to through this. So we, we, we owe God this. We owe the scriptures this, this kind of respect. And we're, we're going to offer it. So let, let's look. In, in verse 5. David explains the reaction of the believer in entrusting the Lord with his or her eternal salvation. He says in Psalm 31 verse 5, In your hand I commend my spirit. Now that's what Christ says. And Christ utilizes it at a very specific time, doesn't he? From the cross. From the cross. But Christ wisely and purposefully does not complete the thought, does he? Because the end of our thought is, Into your hands I complete my spirit. You have redeemed me. O oh Lord, faithful God. We think of it so often as, as almost a dirge. Do you know what I mean? Almost a death song into your hand, into thy hands I commit my spirit. At this moment of death, he gives up the ghost. And he's gone. He passes away. But what he's guiding us to is the fact that at that moment, death didn't come upon him, but life came upon the world. At that moment, there was now salvation to be had for a world lost in sin. Those chosen, those God's elect would now be numbered, would now be drawn out from all the nations of the earth. Into thy hands I give my spirit. Why? Because in that he has redeemed us. There's redemption here. The committing of the human spirit to the Lord is not just mirrored in death, but literal and purposeful because it ends in the redemption from sin. He's literally speaking of salvation. To commit my spirit to Christ means that I trust in the salvation which the Savior has grown. I have now placed my trust rightly in the one place that I can deposit my spirit knowing that it will be safe. I have now trusted my soul to the only one who's trustworthy with the soul. 
These words echoed by Christ on the cross are also present in the submission of our sins to the finished work of Jesus on the cross for the sins of his people. It's all tied in together. But then here's, here's I think, where maybe, maybe the deeper message is. It's not just in verse 5 where he shows us the path and that idea of committing my soul to Christ. But here, he says in verse 6, he says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Now, there's a, there's a strange saying there that I think we, we sometimes need to work on. And that is, David doesn't say he disapproves. Of people who regard idols. He doesn't say he feels sorry for people who regard idols. What does he say he does? He hates them. He hates them. Now it's a very difficult thing I understand. It's a very difficult thing for us to kind of master. And I, I use the statistic often. And that is that, that, that 14 times in the first 50 Psalms. God's talking about hating somebody. The righteousness of hatred. God hates idolatry so much that we're to hate idolaters. God hates idolatry so much that we can share the gospel with them and we can share the, 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 uh, we share the glories of the cross with them. But God says that we are to hate those who regard worthless idols. We have no fellowship with them. We have no relationship with the idolater. We hate the one who regards worthless idols. The reaction of faithfulness is understandable. Those who trust in Christ despise the ones who turn to idolatry. We despise them. The Lord's never glorified when men and women choose to waste their worship on inanimate, vain, or demonic creations of their own wicked hearts. In the end, there is an offense caused here. I love, we were to love our Lord so much that when we see him spurn for worthless idolatry, we don't, we don't feel sorry for that. We are, our hearts are stirred against that. Through the prophet Jonah, Jonah 2.8, we're taught the fate of those who indulge in the worship of idols. Jonah writes, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. My hatred for idolatry. And my hatred for those who would waste their lives on idolatry has to end right there in that bitter truth. To make sure I warn those people that you know where idolatry leads? There's no hope of the steadfast love of God found in idolatry. Now, I, once again, I always have to extend things. And, and maybe I should. Maybe I should just stand back with what God has directly uh, caused me to put on the paper. But I'm going to say this very clearly. I think we need a 21st, defini 21st century definition of idolatry. I don't think we need a 19th century definition of idolatry. I think we, need to, we don't need to just sit back and say, oh well, idolatry, the, the Hindus, that's idolatry. Well, the Buddhists, that's idolatry. It is. By definition, it is. Animistic beliefs scattered around the world among tribal peoples. That's idolatry. It's always demonic. It's always wicked. It's never sweet. It's never cute anywhere. There's one lesson of the Old Testament. One lesson of the conquest of Canaan was that idolatry, the worship of, idol of idols is always the worship of demons. It always corrupts. It always destroys. We hate it. Why? Because it's so dangerous. Because behind it is always evil. We hate it. 
Because if we don't hate it, we'll think somehow we can dwell alongside it. We'll be lot. And we'll make our camp on the well-watered, in the well-watered cities of the plain. What will we do? We'll settle down in the midst of, of the most vile wickedness the earth has ever seen. And then we wonder what happened to us. What happened to us was we weren't angered by idolatry. We didn't see idolatry and flee from it the way Paul says for us to do. We thought somehow we could control it. It's a fool's errand to think we can somehow control the urges of idolatry. What we can do is spurn it and hate it and war against it. Why was the conquest of Canaan so violent and so bloody? Because those idolatrous tribes were worshiping the devil himself. You couldn't live with them. You couldn't live beside them. You couldn't make them your neighbor. They could turn and repent or they could face the sword. And there was no, there was no third path. Idolatry is such a serious offense against God because at the heart of idolatry is always ancient wickedness. Always ancient wickedness. No future exists that allows for the preservation of the soul that's devoted to idolatry. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the antidote to the idolatrous tendencies of natural men and women. I think that's another problem. Why, why must we war against idolatry? Because we're drawn to it. Think about every single time, and I'm working my way through the Old Testament right now, my, my current devotion. So, so Brother Brian, it seems just to glare at me now. To be just this glaring idea. Every single time the men and women of Israel came in contact with idolatry, what did they do? They fell into it. They fell into it every single time. Now, were the Israelites just special people and they were, they, were weak, weak, they were weak toward idols? No, not at all. They're us. So we talk about the 21st century definition of idolatry and the idea that we better have a warlike mentality toward this idolatry. We better drive it away from our homes and drive it away from our minds and drive it away from our communities. Why? Because I think it's so much bigger. Than just Baal has so many different names nowadays, and Asherah has so many different names. Because we'll worship a job, and we'll worship a recreation, and we'll worship a drug or a narcotic, and we'll worship our, our own children, and we'll worship our, our bank account, and we'll worship everything else in the world naturally, but the one being the triune God for whom we were created to worship. We have a better have a 21st century definition of what it means to be idolatrous. Because I'll be honest with you, we live in a country overrun by idols. Let me tell you something else. We live in a community overrun by idols. Everybody in the world bowing in worship, bowing in worship to everything but the God that commands their worship. And how do you know it the most? Where are they on Sunday? Where are they on Sunday? You can see their idolatry in Sunday sloth. Every time. Primarily compromised of the antithesis of the stony idol, the incredibly impactful gospel truth of which Jesus is the manifestation. As John says in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The idol is a lie. It's not just a nothing. It's not a bauble 
are a trifle. The idol is at its heart a lie. The idol is at its heart demonic. It's at its heart the, the, the product of the father of lies himself. That's the idol. Jesus is the embodiment of the word of truth. As Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13, And him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. The words of the cross, the gospel, it's the vehicle by which men and women come to repentance and belief. Without the testimony of Christ, men and women would never find their way to the new birth. The truth is absolutely essential to being born again. You were born again because you came in contact with, interacted with, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the life-giving truth of the gospel. As the true church, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus, and I believed it, and believed it, we then believe in the Savior that the gospel represents. By believing the truth, we believe the Savior. Look, concerning the precious cross of Christ, John R. W. Stott wrote, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. We have to see our connection with the cross as we move beyond just the, the simple truth of, of Psalm 31, 5, and 6 to a, to a greater and a deeper truth. We have to now connect it with the cross that it connects itself, Right? Jesus' own words on the cross connect this psalm to his actions. When we do that, we now say this. Wait a second. I've got a part in the cross. I, my sin, made the cross necessary. I always have to see my own guilt in the cross. I always have to see God's reaction. God's hatred for sin. As demonstrated in the cross. God's ultimate infinite offense at sin. As defined by the murder of His Son for the sins of His people. I have to always see it that way. I've got a part in that. I'm guilty. The writer of Hebrews explains the everlasting nature of the God-man Jesus Christ, who in hypostatic union is both the eternal high priest and the ultimate and infinite human sacrifice for the sins of the chosen people. I still look back and I can't believe I said that. You know, you're not even paying attention, but, but I said, that's a human sacrifice. But that's exactly what happened, isn't it? The ultimate sacrifice for the sins of, of, of God's people was, a, was the God-man who in human form gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's exactly what happened. He writes in Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh. There we go, those days of the flesh of Jesus. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, Doom was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Fascinating character Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Many of us who've studied him in this room are, are going to say, this is a Christophany. Melchizedek is, is a, an appearance of Christ pre-birth, pre pre-first advent in the Old Testament. There's, there's several of them. And he appears there as Melchizedek as a new line of priesthood that would only come to fruition when he would accept the royal priesthood that lasts 
forever and ever. As a man, Jesus prayed, look, first, as a man, Jesus prayed for a personally beneficial will of God. Now, I, I say that because there's another connection. Um, I'll, I'll say this, guys. I have often prayed for a personally beneficial will of God. I've, I've not prayed. I'm not, I'm, look, I've been sinful in prayer, there's no doubt. But in this one issue, one issue, no. I have not prayed for God to necessarily change His will. I did not know God's will, brother. And I prayed that God's will was what I so desperately thought I wanted. Now, the sinful part is this. Is that I've often prayed for a personally beneficial will of God for some very trivial things. Do you understand what I mean? You can feel so bummed out and desperate if... Your cars broke down. Can't you? Seriously. You can feel like, because I mean, they don't, they don't just, you don't just go to the quick stop and buy a new one, right? It doesn't work that way. I mean, they're expensive. Even the really sorry ones, like I used to get, are expensive. And so you just don't, you know, you get really bummed out about it. You can get really bummed out just over money problems in general, can't we? We can get really bummed out over sickness. Now, the reason I'm saying that is, I think I've always used this as an example. And please, I know my examples are tired, but I'm getting old and I'm running out of stuff, okay? So just give me a break. When I get really bummed out about a car or something like that, like I said that for a preacher, it can really bum you out really bad over a car. I start thinking back and realizing that I can't remember all the cars I've owned. Anybody else in this room? Got, got the, kind of got the thing. You might could, brother buddy, if you tried really hard, but you'd have to sit down and scratch your head about it. Because there probably have been a lot, right? Not very many? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. There's somebody. Uh, me too. The problem is the wheels are already always falling off of I, I feel you. I get, I get, I'm on the same standard there, brother. The problem is that apparently my wheels aren't tied on quite as well as yours are. Okay? There you go. You know, yours, mine are just already off. Probably falling off when I pick it up. Okay, trying to. I literally, I just keep thinking back, I really can't remember all of them. And so how important are they then? They're just not. I mean, I know it was money. and I know they were expensive. And a lot of them I spent a long time paying on, and it felt like it felt forever paying them off. But the reality is this didn't. I don't know how my life would have even been any different if I hadn't spent that money on I like to think it would be so radically different if I hadn't had to buy it. But the fact of the matter is, I might not have no more money right now than I do if I had not bought all of those along the way. But different. I would have probably wasted on something else, right? I'd have found somewhere else to throw it away. Or somebody would have needed it. In the very same way, if I ever find $20 and knew I had, somebody immediately needs it. And so I felt so good for, instant, you know, for an instant about it. And then what happens? It flies away, right? It's just gone. The whole point is this, I think we tend to get really, I get really, really bummed out about some things that, to, and, and I want to involve the will of God in it, but there are things that are so fleeting and so temporary, they're not really important. And the great, the vital, the great vital will of God, they are nothing. They're really, you want the truth, seriously? It's really a, they're really a symptom or a demonstration of how spoiled I am. 
of how much God has benefited me throughout my life, so much so that I think I have to interject into the mighty and infinite will of God some really minor things that he's already taken care of and that I shouldn't even be stressing over. It really tells me, Brother Tony, you prayed for some stuff that doesn't, that, that God's got that. Just thank him and move on. Just to say, thank you, Lord. I know you're going to take care of this. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. I get stuck on really trivial things. But now here's the difference. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to differentiate. Here's the great difference between our Lord. When our Lord prayed this prayer, he knew he was going to the cross. He, he did, he knew, he knew the infinite nature of the penalty that was going to be heaped upon him. He knew the pain and the suffering. He knew the heartache. He knew things that you and I can only guess that we can surmise. We can surmise about the physicality of it. And you and I can, can sort of postulate about the theological, emotional toll that was taken upon him. The spiritual pain and suffering of suffering literally for the lives of billions. This is the sins of billions of people. It's just, it's just as vast, almost as the cosmos. What he atoned for. He knew all of that. And as any human being would, his prayer was simple and it was direct, right? Simple as direct. It was that the bitter cup could pass from him. If there's any other way, God. Father, if there's any other way that you can make atonement, I'm limited now as a man. If there's any way you can make atonement, Father, then do that. But if not, what does he say in Luke 22, 42? Not my will, but yours be done. He both prays as a man and weeps, but then he surrenders himself completely to the will of God that he knew to be perfect. Although our Lord Jesus is an Unchang is as unchanging in its nature as the Godhead is. This truth reflected by Hebrews 13, 8, which says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The text is clear that the Son of Man learned obedience. It's always been one of those amazing things. He's Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's learning. How does Jesus learn? Well, Christ Jesus did not learn in the sense of being punished for misbehavior. I think that's one of those things. Is that I think we, we're too ready to equate it to us. Because it's easy. You know why I learned obedience? Because I was so disobedient. I had to learn obedience with a strap because I was so disobedient. If I hadn't been disobedient, you're right, right. If I had been disobedient, I'd never had to learn it, right? I learned obedience because I was so horribly disobedient. As I think my parents thought, we better equip this boy or he'll go to prison. Okay? We had equip this boy. Or we'll be visiting him in the jailhouse. But now for Christ it was different. But instead his experiences would typify the godly life. What he learned, the obedience he learned, was the obedience that we are never able to master. Through the actions of Jesus, he obeyed his parents. Luke 2.51. Never managed to do anybody here ever managed to obey your parents completely? No, of course you didn't. You did not. So there's one you didn't do. Obeying the law of God. Matthew 5, 17. You obeyed the law of God. 
We were never able to obey the law of God, fulfilling all righteousness. Matthew 3, 15, and completely fulfilling the will of the Father. John 8, 28, 15, 10, Hebrews 10, 9. All of those things that we are unable to do, he did typifying the ideal Christian life. Literally, he lives the life we are unable to live. So therefore, now his sacrifice of learned obedience really matters. It changes. Changes the world. Jesus demonstrated his commitment to providing the only spotless sacrifice for the sin of the world and becoming the everlasting high priest. Not by way of the ironic order, but a realization of the prophesied order of Melchizedek. One of the great themes of the book of Hebrews. The scriptures tell us in Hebrews 4.14 that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The writer confirms that Jesus is not just the great high priest, but also the sacrifice for our sins. When he writes in Hebrews 9.12, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He is both the high priest and the sacrifice. Christ purchased the universal entrance into the Holy of Holies for the lost sinner by sacrificing himself in infinite purity on the altar of God, making our redemption eternal and not temporary. Finally, we know this from Hebrews 7.25. We understand that we, have a, we don't have a temporary redemption. We have a durable and a permanent deliverance from the consequence of sin. We understand that because Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Do you hear what I'm saying? That you are saved how? To the uttermost. You are as completely saved, not as you can make you, as God can make you. You are saved without ever failing again because God is making that true. Able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. D.A. Carson exalts the sacrifice of Jesus by saying, It was not nails that held Jesus to the wretched cross. It was his unqualified resolution, out of love for his Father, to do his Father's will. And it was his love for sinners like me. Look, the completion of the task, living perfectly, obeying completely, and fulfilling absolutely the demand of God in becoming the Messiah that atones for the sins of the chosen people. Christ becomes the source of eternal salvation for, for all who will believe in Him and in His gospel. Repenting of their sins and shouldering the cross, obeying the will of God for their lives, and proclaiming the one saving truth, the gospel, for all the dark and terrifying world to hear. Now finally, so we talk about this. We talk about this in light of Psalm 31, 5 and 6. We talk about this in light of, of, what, of what, what our God does through making uh, Christ Jesus, uh, God the Son, the, the, the great and eternal high priest in the order, the final order of high priest, in the order of Melchizedek. He is both priest and he's both the fulfillment of the priesthood and the fulfillment of the sacrifice. We talk about all that. So now I'll just say this. What are we supposed to do with it? And I think that's one of the hard things about the Bible. The hard things about the way I preach sometimes is that I, I lead you right up to that edge. I'll tell you exactly what does God want me to do today? Preacher, what is God saying to my heart today? Let's look and see. I think I can say this. The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.24 that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Once again, in line with everything we've talked about so far, going right back to the cross. Bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
Why did he do that? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Again, connections being made, Old and New Testament, back and forth throughout this. The Heavenly Father is so wise in his approach to the unbelieving world that he does not merely offer the truth. But enhances our saving experience by dictating this lifetime response to the truth that must accompany the heart that's saved by the grace of God through the gospel. While Christ bore our sins in his broken and sacrificed body on the cross of Christ, the Savior did this so that we could do two things in response to the truth. What's the first thing? We must die to sin. That is done so that we can die to sin. God's, God's telling you tonight, God's telling me tonight, beginning with me, but to you also, that, that he wants us to die to sin. Not, not struggle with it, not try to deal with it, not try to cope with it, not try to rationalize it away, not make excuses for it, not all those things that we do. God wants us collectively today as a church to die to sin. All this we talked about beforehand, every bit of the cross, every drop of blood, every blow upon His body, all of those things were done on our behalf for one reason, so that we can now successfully die to sin. Die to sin. Now, I, I know it seems like... Almost a cryptic statement, but it's not really. I think we understand it fully. When I die to something, I am dead to it. When I die to something, I don't go back there. If I am dead to a town, or dead to a school, or dead to a family member, or any of the things that I can in my stubborn, sinful, and wicked heart be dead to, because I've been dead to a lot of stuff, and so have you, right? They're dead to me. We'll cut things off and cut people off in a second. If they look at us wrong, if they burp and it smells funny, we will cut them off forever in a wicked way. And God says, take that pension of humanity to die to things. To say, literally, I am never going there again. Me, my relationship with the drive through at McDonald's. I am never going here again. Of course, it's a lie. I'll be back next week. Always. But we're always saying it, aren't we? Never doing this again. We are cutting things off and dying things all the time. What he's saying is now, start dying to the things that are really killing you. Start dying to things that are really ruining your life. That are really driving a wedge between you and your Lord. Start dying to things that destroy your worship, destroy your ministry. Start dying to things that destroy your family. Start really dying to things you're supposed to be dying to. Stop dying to things that don't matter. Stop dying to things because they made you mad. And start dying to things that make God mad. Really die. We know what this means. This is, not a, this is not some abstract term. We really get this. He wants me and you to die to sin. And there's some things in our life, and you know what they are, that we know we've got to die to. We know we tolerate them. We make excuses. We say everybody does it. And we don't see it when we do it. We see it in other people's lives. And we're judgmental about that kind of stuff. And there's a harsh kind of judgment and an unfair, unjust kind of judgment. We know all of that. But the reality is this. What does God want? God wants me to start to see myself with the same clarity I see everybody else in the world. This is killing me. That, that lust there that I hide in the middle of the night, that chemical that I use just to feel a little bit better about myself, this or this or that or that or whatever it is, the hatred, the bigotry, the racism, whatever it is that I hold dear and think I cannot live without, God is telling me i got to die to that stuff. The only reaction to sin is to die to sin. That's it. Jesus suffered and groaned and died on the cross so that we can now turn around and die to sin. 
The only reaction that God will accept from us concerning sin is that we die to it. And that's it. If we're not willing to die to it, we're going to say we're going to remain in bondage to it. I say, I love my sin more than I love my Lord. I'd rather have the sin. I like the sin more than I love my God. It's a ridiculous stance for anyone who claims to know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Simply put, he's painted us into a theological corner. Die to sin. One reaction, die to sin. But what's the next one? The heart that once yearned for this realization has now reduced the influence of the matter to nil. As believers, we now, through the Holy Spirit and the gospel, the power to die to sin, shame, or grand judgment. At the same time, the command by Peter, by Christ via Peter, is that we would live to righteousness. So if we're dying to sin, we're now living in a radically different way. We're living to righteousness. What it's done is it's killed, it's, it's successfully, finally, absolutely killed the old man with all his old dead priorities. And it's now saying to us that you're dead to that, you're dying to that, you've only got one way to live, and that is live to righteousness. Don't define it yourself. Live to God's righteousness. It's not enough to merely die to the sinful path and assume that we will never tread that way again. Instead, we must embrace the living path of righteousness that models the path to the cross for all the world to see. Now, why the world would he want us to do this? Doesn't it make a button? Isn't it perfectly clear? What does he want out of his believers? We're so dead to sin and so living to righteousness that it's obvious we've been with Him. Obvious. We are not the same as we used to be. We don't talk the same. We don't look the same. We don't act the same. The, the, the look on our face is different. We're not doing the same old things. You will find us in the same places as the world because we've died to sin and we live to righteousness. See, but God's making an example out of each and every one of us. A billboard, so to speak. A walking, talking, testifying sermon of the gospel. Without contradiction, because we've died to sin and we live to righteousness. God wants our response to the cross to be, I'm dying to the sin in my life today and I'm going to live to righteousness. I know what the righteous way is. It's elucidated from the pulpit every Sunday, every Wednesday. We know what it is and we're going to go that way because God's laying it out through the teaching of the word. We know what righteousness is, and we know where it's not found. We know where we can't go to find it. Only in dying and in living can men and women show the world that our wounds are healed by Jesus. Let's pray together.